Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. We are continuing in our sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up. It's also printed in your order of worship. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will also be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as we sang together, thank you for gathering us together this morning as your people. And may we be encouraged this morning wherever we find ourselves, as we wrestle through what it means and what it looks like to grieve with hope, as Paul talks about, and the very nature of our hope in Christ. And may we also encourage each other with these words, as Paul says at the very end, as we live out our faith in this particular church community, in our neighborhoods, and in our great city. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the fall of 2016 was the 15-year anniversary of 9-11, and I remember it vividly because uh, Rachel and I happened to be flying to a wedding that I was officiating in Washington, D.C. Now, as the plane touched down at Ronald Reagan International Airport, instead of that intense feeling of slowing down, the plane actually sped up and took off again. I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one confused and alarmed because some of the other passengers around us were all looking around and shrugging at each other. And a little corner of my brain started to imagine the worst case scenario. Now, this is only funny in retrospect, but I remember thinking to myself, man, I wish you were in better shape because just in case something happens, you might need to save the plane. And we sat there for a full two minutes wondering what the heck was going on until finally the pilot's voice crackled over the intercom. And he said, sorry folks, we're going to need to circle for a little while until they have room for us on the tarmac. I hope that touchdown didn't alarm anyone. Well, Mr. Pilot, let me tell you something. Uh, I'm sorry to say that it did. It freaked me out. And having that information just a few minutes ahead of time would have spared me and some of the other passengers some anxiety. But if we could multiply that anxiety that I felt in those two minutes by a thousand, we might get some idea of how the Thessalonians felt about the issue that Paul is addressing in our passage. If you recall, Paul visited the important port city of Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And when he preached there, when he preached the gospel, a large uh, number of both Greeks and Jews became followers of Jesus. 
Now, Paul's normal practice when he founded a new church was to stay there and teach for a while. For example, he spent three months in Philippi and a year and a half in Corinth. And if you remember the letter to the Corinth, you know, Corinth, the Corinthians, you know that they definitely needed that extra help. So certainly Paul had intended to stay there for a while, but within a month of him arriving, he was forced to flee due to violent persecution that had broke out against these newly baptized Christians. So naturally, since Paul had to leave so quickly, the church had some theological gaps that needed to be filled in. So they sent a messenger to, the, uh, to Paul, who was now in Corinth, uh, to ask him a number of questions. And one of their serious concerns was the fate about those who have died before Jesus returned. Would their family and friends who had died, likely martyred, have a place in Jesus' kingdom when he returned? Or would only those who were alive when Jesus returned be a part of his new kingdom? In essence, they were asking, will God take care of my loved ones who have died, and will we see them again? So this part of the letter is is like Paul getting on the intercom and saying, friends, I'm sorry that I left you to imagine the worst-case scenario. Let me share some information with you that will be an encouragement to you. So as we walk through our passage this morning, I want us to focus on three important truths that Paul communicates to this young church. And first, Paul is teaching us that grief is the proper Christian response to death. Now, if we were to take out the double negatives that we find in verse 13, it says, we want to inform you about those who have fallen asleep because we want to spare you from grieving in the same way as others who have no hope. Church, it is crucial that we notice that Paul doesn't say Christians shouldn't grieve. Rather, Paul is saying that faith in Jesus creates the possibility of grieving differently. There are all kinds of ways that our culture and sometimes the church can try to minimize or distract from the pain of losing someone that we love. And this sometimes comes out in our condolences, right? They're in a better place. Or you don't need to be sad because we know that they're with Jesus. When we say these things and we try to put a brighter spin on loss and death, it's usually less to provide comfort to the one who is mourning and more to alleviate our own discomfort with another's grief. But Paul and Jesus don't pretty up death. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul calls death the final enemy of God. It's not a friend coming to take you home. It's not just a stage in the circle of life. It is an abomination. And when Jesus arrives at his friend's house in our gospel lesson, after Lazarus' death, he doesn't put his arm around them and say, remember, it's not so bad because I'm going to fix it. He just weeps with them. He weeps for them. And he weeps even though he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It pains God that in this fallen world that we will have to endure an unnatural bodily separation from those we love. And yet, 
Paul is saying that Jesus offers us a way to hold a mountain of grief alongside a mountain of hope. The Christian hope is that Jesus has promised that the anguish of our loss has an endpoint. Death has an expiration date. There will come a day when the reason for our grief will be undone. Hope doesn't reduce the depth of our grief because grief is the shadow side of love and we are built to grieve in proportion to our love. But hope seasons our grief. Church, it is the only thing that lifts up our eyes to look for our help when we would otherwise feel that we might be dragged underwater by despair. And as author Paul Tripp says, in times of death, Christians should be sadder than anyone else, and yet we should also be the most hopeful of any who mourn. And this brings us to the second truth this morning. Jesus' resurrection is the source of our hope because his rising assures us that our bodies will rise too. Paul writes in verse 14, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Christianity is anchored in the historical reality that over 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man named Jesus was murdered and put in a tomb, and three days later, he was resurrected. He opened his eyes, he took off his grave clothes, and he walked whole and healthy out of a sealed tomb. And then he interacted, and he taught, and he ate with hundreds of eyewitnesses for a period of 40 days. And Jesus promised that when he returns and he defeats death once and for all, our bodies will also be raised, remade, whole, and glorious, and yet fully us like his own resurrected body. Now, I got to say, this was a radical belief in the first century. The Greek and the Roman worldview was at best ambivalent about the human body. Bodies were, were useful for pleasure, but otherwise the soul was considered the real authentic self. And bodies were a kind of prison that tied the soul down. And they believed that all that our souls had to look forward to in the afterlife, if there was an afterlife, was a shadowy oblivion in the underworld. So while some people received the resurrection with incredibly good news, others had a hard time digesting the idea of a resurrection. But church, Paul is firm in his insistence that the resurrection isn't a side benefit or an afterthought in God's plan of salvation. It is the main attraction. It is the main act. It is the engine that powers and completes everything else. And this is what Paul says to the church at Corinth, where some teachers have raised doubts about the resurrection. Paul says, If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then also who, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, faith in Jesus isn't worth anything if there isn't a future bodily resurrection. Now, practically speaking, because God will one day raise our bodies, what we do with our bodies really matters. They really matter. Because of the resurrection, the good work that we labor for in this life, Paul says, is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, the good work that we do now will actually carry on into the coming kingdom. And this means that the relationships that we tend and the bonds that we build on this side of death will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us when heaven and earth are finally reunited again. In other words, love doesn't just live on in our hearts or in our memory when our loved ones pass. The love and connection that we have shared transcends death and they live on with us in the new creation. N.T. Wright uh, says this, and he, 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 he writes extensively on this topic of the resurrection. He says, you are not restoring a great painting that is shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building project. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. He says, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for another human being, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in this world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Our labor of love is not in vain. And so we are encouraged to continue to give of ourselves now, to deepen our bonds and interconnectedness, to devote ourselves to loving one another more and more, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, with thanksgiving, because love will last into eternity. And that brings us to the third reality, that when Jesus returns and raises the dead, that we will be reunited with Jesus and we will be reunited with those whom death has taken from us. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, let me be clear. Paul's point in these verses is not to give us a play-by-play of the end times as much as many of us would want that. When the biblical writers 
talk about what this reunion with Jesus will look and feel like, they always resort to using metaphors and poetry. But the point here that Paul's making is that the Thessalonians don't have to fear for their loved ones who have died because God is invested in their good and he will take care of them and they will be reunited again. And what's more, both our spirits and our bodies will be reunited with the spirit and the bodies of our loved ones on that great day. And we will live together in a world made perfect alongside Jesus. And on that day, our longing to embrace our loved ones that we have lost will finally be satisfied. The person whose conversations we so miss, their smile and their laugh will be restored to us. The person whose silent presence brought such comfort can hold our hand again. And we will live together without fear of losing them again in a world free of evil, full of glory and peace and goodness. Finally, Paul ends this section by writing in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When Rachel and I uh, first had kids... A parenting book was recommended to us that had been written by a prominent psychiatrist uh, from Chicago. And one of the striking claims the author made is that a parent's most important job is to encourage their children. Now, he doesn't use the word encourage in the way that most of us do, which is usually to tell people nice things so they'll do a better job than they are currently doing. His definition of encourage goes back to its root meaning. And that is to give courage. It is to give courage. And he reflects on how children are constantly being faced with new tasks that they've never uh, encountered before and have very little chance of doing well at first. And our job is to give them courage to persevere until they become competent and independent. And I think this is how Paul is using this word here. He intends for these truths to give us courage. Courage uh, not in the sense of a stiff upper lip, but courage to walk through grief. Courage to sit in solidarity with those who are in grief. And courage, yes, courage to trust Jesus that death will never have the last word. Amen and amen.